welcome. I'm Erin Cuthbert, footballer for Chelsea and the Scotland national team, and you're listening to the Blue Day podcast. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. Yes, folks, this is the Blue Day podcast. And for Chelsea fans everywhere, every day is a Blue Day. I am your host, as always, Keith Lawrence. And, folks, we have a very special episode for you this week. We have a very special guest for you this week. No, it is not my co-host who's who's going to be sitting alongside me on this one. He is somebody who, for many supporters of the show, will might remember he... It was class as the ticket guy once upon a time, but he's certainly the Londoner living it large up north. It's Warren. Warren, welcome back. Before we talk about other things, let's get straight on to the let's get straight on to the main event, shall we? Right. Let's. Can you can you do the honors of introducing our special guest today? I will do. I will do. Thank you very much, Keith, for that wonderful intro as always. And hello to my fellow Chelsea supporters all around the world. Firstly, I want to say how really, really excited I am for this. As long-term listeners of the show will know, we've had some very illustrious and esteemed guests in the past, ranging from the one and only Ron Chopper-Harris um, to the CPO, um, the chairman of the Chelsea Pitch Owners Association, Mr. Chris Isaac. We've had the likes of journalists, Harry Harris. We've even had the voice of Stamford Bridge himself, Neil Despy Barnett. But very few of our previous esteemed guests have the illustrious career of our guests today and what i want to do is for the guesses out there i'm going to give you a little run through some of his credentials from the sport of snooker um firstly he is a former world champion winning his world championship in 2010 he is a triple crown winner um he has been a professional for over 25 years consistently being in the top 16 for that whole time in 2014, he became the first and is still the only person, professional snooker player, to have made 100 centuries in a single season. Uh, a statistic that to this day still amazes and astounds me. He finished with 103, no less, centuries in one season. He is one of only four players to have made over 900 centuries in his career, keeping illustrious company like John Higgins, Judd Trump and the Rocket Ronnie O'Sullivan. He is widely regarded as probably the best overseas player that we've ever had on the green base. He is the one and only, the thunder from down under, Mr. Neil Robertson. Neil, welcome to the show. Wow, what an intro. I feel like I should be getting into a boxing ring with that. That was awesome. <laughs> Rob Walker inspired me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does a great job with that, Rob. Yeah, And so did you. Yeah, that was brilliant. Thank you. But well, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for coming on to the show. Um, as, as discussed before, obviously, this is the Blue Day podcast. We are a, a football podcast to do with Chelsea, but we just wanted to touch on a little bit of your snooker career as well, because we thought that it would be criminal to have such an illustrious guest on our show and not talk about some of your amazing achievements, like the, the Triple Crown and the centuries in 13, 14 is probably where I'd want to start. I mean, I remember watching your the 100th century in that season. I mean, that was that was incredible, Neil. I know you get a lot of people talking about it and stuff, but how was that for you? Was that was that? Did you feel a lot of pressure because people were talking about it? 
Yeah, there's loads of pressure because the the pre, uh, Judge Trump had the previous record of, um, I think he made like 62 or 63. And quite early on, I was making a lot of centuries during the season. And um, I think after when I won the UK Championship, when I beat Mark Selby in the final, I think I'd finished um, going into like the Christmas break. I think I was on like something like 60. So it was it was very much on the cards. And um yeah, things started really well. Um around sort of, you know, I think around February I was, you know, maybe around eighty or something. And then um yeah, going into the world championships, I think I needed to make uh how many did I need to make? I think I needed to make seven, I think, going in. So still quite a lot to make in, in one tournament. And uh yeah, to do it against Judd in the quarterfinals, um the match where I was I think I was uh 11-8 down as well. So to come back and, and make the century to go, I think it was to go 11-all, I think. Yes, um, I believe it was. Yeah, a lot of relief because there was a huge amount of uh, external pressure, you know, to try and be the first player to make 100 centuries. And I, I didn't really want to feel like, you know, when Don, Brand, Don Bradman, when he when he finished his cricket career, he finished his average on 99.8 because he got out with a, a, a duck in, in his last ever inning. So... Um, yeah, I was really desperate to get it done, and yeah, I was incredibly proud to do so. To to break the record that was previously held by forty odd centuries was was amazing, you know. So um, yeah, one of those those records that I'm um, very proud of. Yeah, you mentioned Judd there, and he's obviously one of the. Um, I believe it's a, just a group of four of you that have made over nine hundred competitive mm. centuries in your in your careers which is amazing but when uh, Judd Trump is one of my favorite players to watch he's so you know naughty snooker and everything and when the two of you get together and like playing each other and you're both on good form it's it's one of the most exciting matchups probably along with when Ron is playing well and he's yep. playing sort of anybody else in the world <laughs> it seems to be quite exciting but you and Judd particularly seem to have um you seem to bring the best out of each other quite a lot yeah. as well and you seem to have met each other quite a lot in big tournaments as well would you consider him i mean i mean obviously i think he's one of the best players in the world but how do you regard people oh, like yeah, of course. yeah yeah John, he's, he's already one of the best players who's ever played there's no doubt about yeah. that um i guess there's like in terms of one of the all-time greats in terms of a player he's he's right right up there um in terms of like you know what you have like a goat conversation. It's like who's won the most worlds and that sort of stuff. Obviously, he's got a lot to do there. But in terms of a player, like he's undoubtedly one of the greatest players he's ever played. And yeah, we've had a lot of really good matches in finals. Um, the champion and champions final a few years ago, where um, there was eight centuries in, in the match. I made five of them and um, I won 10 9 with a total clearance in the last frame. That was probably considered the best final of all time in terms of the overall standard. Um, so yeah, we, we tend to bring the best out of each other. We're both aggressive players and like the heavy scoring, which is what people, you know, really enjoy watching. Um, so yeah, hopefully there's uh, plenty more to come. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, like I said, you certainly seem to bring the best out of each other when you play each other and you do certainly play to an incredibly high standard. Talking about sort of like the break building, obviously you've made five competitive maximums in your career to date. For those of for, for those viewers that um, of the Blue Bidet podcast that may not be as familiar with snooker as me, and some of which may never have been particularly interested in snooker, hopefully we can get people to engage in it a little bit more. Now this sounds like a like an unbelievable question, but just how difficult is that? I mean, like thirty five. A one four seven. 
Yeah, like 35 um, consecutive perfect shots. I guess it's like considered one of the hardest things to do in a sport, an individual sport, certainly. Um, hmm. People compare it to hole in one or nine data and goal in um, a hole in one and goal for a nine data and darts. But um, a hole in one can kind of be done by anyone. Like I've got a friend who's done it in Australia, like an older guy, he did it with a seven wood, you know, he just smacked it down and it rolled all the way yeah. along onto the green and just went in, you know. So You can certainly just... have an element of luck for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, massively. And, and a nine data, I think, is something that people do on quite a regular basis, certainly in practice. And um, they seem to come at a more regular intervals and what sort of big Absolutely. ones do in the big events so and the dartboard never moves like the with snooker like the, every shot's kind of different you know with darts it's like a very much a repetitive action um it's still <laughs> incredibly difficult to do and um i have absolute admiration for the skill in that but i think world snooker is certainly considered like the hardest individual achievement to do in a sport because it yeah, takes I'd... years to get there. It takes years to, to develop. Absolutely. I'd, it's, it's not even a question for me that it is the most, uh, it's the most difficult feat in any any sport that I've ever watched. Like you said, holding one, can, I, I'd, I'm not particularly good at golf. I could miss hit a ball when it went in for a holding one. Yeah. <laughs> um, like you say, with the darts, you could just practice for eight hours a day for a year and you just happen to get this cluster of nine darts together. I mean, I was talking to my esteemed um, co-host Keith earlier on about, I've played snooker most of my life. I've played snooker for probably about 25, 26 years now. My highest break is 29. And I was trying to... It's it's not too bad. It should probably be better. I'm very impatient, so I lose my concentration. (laughs) But um, but to try and put it into some perspective for Keith, who I know doesn't have quite as much time to watch snooker as I do, I was trying to put it into perspective for (laughs) him. You know, you you could play a shot almost perfectly, be half an inch off, and that's the end of the break. Yeah, that's right. You miss, yeah, millimetres out is all it takes. Absolutely. I've just got a couple of more questions for you. Obviously, um... I guess it would be the pinnacle of your career winning the world championship at the wonderful Crucible Theatre in 2010. Um, do you think that you're a better player now because of that or or not, basically? Yeah, definitely a much better player because um, the game's changed an awful lot. Like the competition has got harder and harder. The, the strength of the depth of the tour is very, very strong. Um, like a lot of sports these days, you see, you know, I think... Um, you know, even just to sort of compare it to football, if you look at the Premier League 20 years ago, um, you know, you look at how strong the teams were then and then you look at it now and it's like it's almost right all the way down until the relegation battle, you know what I mean? All, there's so many good teams um, that play really good football and it's like that in a lot of sports and snooker is no different to that. So uh, much harder to win tournaments now than what it used to be, you know, to put yourself in those positions to win them. Um, something I struggled with this season, actually, it's like getting past that last stage two, last 16 stage. And once you get down to like the quarter semifinals, that's when like the biggest players really kind of turn up and, and show the difference in the quality because they can handle the pressure really well. Um, but yeah, as, as a player overall, certainly much better than, than what I was back then. Absolutely. And just like I say, just a couple of more little points and then I'm going to hand you over to Keith to sort of talk more about obviously like Chelsea and so our regular viewers sort of get their fix of the Blue Day podcast as well. But who's your, who's the toughest competitor you've played against? Because I think that a lot of people would automatically assume it would be Ronnie on top form because I think we all know what a naturally gifted guy. I mean, he's just the most naturally gifted snooker player I've ever seen. But then I hear a lot of professionals talking about 
the match play of people like John Higgins and Mark Selby? Can you, yeah. is there is there one that's more difficult to play against than the other, or can you compare the two styles? Yeah, it, it would be. Um, I mean, Ronnie's, you know, like arguably one of Britain's greatest ever sportsmen. You know, many people do consider him probably the greatest. Um, two different kind of challenges, right? I think that Selby and Higgins uh, both can be really strong offensive players as well, but you know they, they generally make it really, really tough for you. They put the white in difficult positions on the cushions and sort of block angles a lot. Ronnie also does that, but Ronnie comes at you like um, like a hurricane, really. You know, he, he's very, very attacking. He he gets you playing on instinct. He gets you playing maybe a bit quicker than what you are comfortable with because he is just so fast. Mm. Um, and obviously the crowd love it as well. So when he's playing really well, the crowd are really enjoying it. And you have to go with that. You have no choice. You have to, with my game, with, with how attacking I like to be, I have to try and go with him in that regard. I can't do what Higgins and Selby do where they sort of maybe keep things really tight and slow the game down a bit maybe. Um, so that's the difference between the two. So all three of them have tremendous qualities. But with Ronnie, it's you're, you're part of like a show and you have to go with it or else you become part of the exhibition yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And and just finally, and I, I know these questions are a little bit random, but again, I'm trying to cater for the people that might not be as used to watching snooker and not quite as aware of it. I remember seeing an interview with you, I think it was around 2008, 2009, and you were saying that you had made a big change to your like your personal life and your approach to snooker. You said when you first came to the UK, maybe you was not as focused on the game and maybe you was enjoying the nightlife a little bit too much and then you started knuckling down. Um, I know you won your first ranking event, I think, was it the 06 Grand Prix? Yeah, the Grand the Prix. Grand yeah. Prix. yeah, yeah. Fantastic performance. Congratulations. And it was sort of from there that you started to really knuckle down. Um, and I just wanted you to give, like, you know, our viewers a brief in-look into how how much dedication it really takes to be not only a top-level snooker player, but a former world number one as you are and a world champion. I mean, you've won 23 ranking tournaments. That doesn't happen by accident, does it? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's a huge amount of work to put in. Um, yeah, when I was younger, I suppose, like any kind of, you know, sort of late teen, early 20-year-old, you know, you kind of, um, you learn through your life experiences and stuff like that. And um, I think when I first started winning tournaments, it was like, you know, you go out to the nightclubs and stuff and everyone's recognising you. And it's like, oh, wow, this is so exciting, you know. Mm -hmm. And But then I think you learn quickly that when, you know, maybe you have a bit of a lean spell and, you know, 90% of those people all of a sudden aren't around you anymore and then you really sort of um, find out who your real friends are. And so, yeah, just like sort of, normal part of life i guess with anyone you know and um yeah but a huge amount of work that i've put in like you know a lot of work on the table but it's all the stuff i do away from the table as well it's the uh, you know when i finish the match as soon as i get home i'm spending a few hours um analyzing it and even sometimes a few hours again the next day analyzing the same match and going through we have like a lot of really good sort of data and stuff that we can sort of collect and, and gather and watch and um so it's all that kind of stuff that you that you go through that people don't see probably very yeah. much like coaches in football, you know, like it's, it's what manage, you know, the managers like they barely sleep. They sleep, you know, three, four hours a day. Sometimes if they're lucky, you know, Frank Lampard talked about it a lot. It's, it's all that work that you have to do The you know, you're watching a match five, six times over thinking what could you have done different? And um, it's all of these things that 
make people um, great, make them the elite. That's what separates the the elite from from the not so. Well, you are very much part of the elite, Neil, and you obviously have been for a number of years now. Long may it continue. I am going to pass you back over to my esteemed co-host and let him let him do his bit at the football because I know he's chomping at the bit. I know he's very excited as well. But once again, on, on behalf of myself and on behalf of the Blue Day podcast, thank you very, very much for coming on. And that is a really cool Darth Vader the helmet yeah, actually pretty... comes off it's like a real life um thing i showed it to my son when he was like maybe four and he completely freaked out and so i haven't um well i hope you i hope you reintroduced him to the wonderful world of star wars since. oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah so sure. i can see boba fett over there as well I've yes, just seen boba right. fett. Yep. i'm going i'm going on a tangent keith keith <laughs> lock me up thank you very much neil really appreciate it thank you thank you Warren, you can stay for this. Thank you very much for the Thank you very much. Lovely I'm gonna mute I'm gonna mute myself off. If ever was a guy so excited, it was him today. Brilliant. Right, let's crack on with Chelsea. Let's crack on with obviously your thoughts because there was a couple of bits where obviously we'll talk about when you decided to start um supporting Chelsea. But I've noticed on on X, like social media. You've been quite vocal about how Chelsea have pretty much fallen. We discussed it. We will discuss it in a minute. In terms of they were Champions League winners a couple of years ago to where they are now. But before we discuss that, take us back to the moment when you decided to become a Chelsea supporter. When was that moment for you that you got that sort of nick of this is a team I want to start supporting? Um, so when I, when I came over to live in the UK, well, to try and live in the UK, um, when I was probably, I think I was like 19 at this point, um, I came over to live in Leicester, uh, so it would have been 2001. Um, and I didn't really know too much about football. Like I watched like the world cup with my dad, the 98 world cup with my dad. We used to like, you know, he wanted to watch, I wasn't particularly keen, but he wanted to, and he, sort of told me about, you know, the Brazilian Ronaldo and, you know, Zidane and all that sort of stuff. So we watched the, the 98 World Cup together and it was, it was pretty cool. Not so much getting up at 3 a.m. to watch the matches, but, <laughs> you know, being in Australia. But um, I watched it, um, you know, I watched it with him and that and, and you know, it was it was a great spectacle. But in Australia back then, we didn't really have like sort of, you know, um, like Sky or anything like that. They, they, they barely showed any of the matches from the Premier League. All we'll get was maybe like the, the final of the FA Cup or something or, you know, very little TV. Um, and so when I moved over to the UK, um, I, you know, obviously you know the the interest in football was completely different to in australia where it was all aussie rules cricket and Mm. rugby and you know tennis or something right so um it was always on in the the snooker club that i was playing at at um willie thorns in leicester and um you know match of the day was on which was always like a really good highlights package and if i'm being honest at the time i kind of just preferred to watch match of the day and not an entire match of football because sure. you know, sometimes it'd be nil nil and i'd be really confused and i'm like well like, what the hell is this like you know australian sports and american sports which i really love all very high scoring affairs you know it's yeah. like goal 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 and you know, so I didn't really appreciate the intricate sort of the tactics and the individual sort of moments of brilliance, um, you know, with someone doing really good dribbling or, you know, great pass or, you know, all these sorts of things. So it took a while for me to kind of start to enjoy the game. And 
Um, but on match of the day, like Hasselbank and Johnson were scoring like a lot of goals together as a partnership, and um, Hasselbank was like scoring these like you know unbelievable goals. And also the Chelsea team had a lot of overseas players in the team. I think that um, I think it was the first team that actually played a full Premier League eleven, didn't it, with non English players? Right. Yeah. So I quite enjoyed that. I, you know, being an overseas person myself, living in the UK, I quite liked all the overseas players that were that were playing in the team. And, um, yeah, so I just enjoyed watching them. I knew Man United was, like, a big team. But, again, like, when I went over to the UK, um, the most famous part I knew about Man United was that David Beckham was married to Posh Spice, like Victoria Beckham. And everyone in Australia, that's how we actually viewed it in Australia, was that she was the big name and he was, the like, the the sidekick in the show. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, seriously. It was, you know, it was like that. And um, so... I didn't really have any kind of connection or anything like that with any of the other teams like Arsenal, Liverpool or, you know, Man United. So um, I just kind of like followed them. I didn't support them then, but I, I just kind of like, I liked them. I liked the blue kit as well. Um, and yeah, I watched the matches and I remember there was one game, maybe in the uh, semis of the League Cup, I think um, we had someone sent off. Uh, it was against Spurs, I think. Is that right? believe so um, yes yeah and, uh, it's around about that time yeah yeah I th- yeah i think so, yes i think we lost like the second leg 5-1 or something and the person i was staying with in leicester was a spurs fan and he was cheering and jumping up and down and everything like that and um so i remember watching it and just kind of like wanting chelsea to win more so just to see him get annoyed but it didn't turn out like that obviously <laughs> um and uh, i remember watching an fa cup game where zola did this like flick at the near post against norwich and that was all the talk, all the rave in the snooker club. The next day was everyone talking about Zola's flick. So it was like quite exciting, you know, the team and that. And um, yeah, but so my season didn't end very well. I, I didn't do too well on the snooker tour. So I went back to Australia, but I always kind of kept sort of tabs on results and things. And when I came back to Cambridge in 2003, um, that was the team I kind of sort of just, I just continued that kind of support really. Um, and I remember playing in the um, I remember playing the Masters, playing in the Masters, the snooker tournament, and John Terry was in the crowd. I wasn't playing myself, but I was watching the tournament on TV after I got knocked out and John Terry was in the crowd and you know, he was like playing for Chelsea and stuff. And I just thought that was really cool that Chelsea had like a really big snooker fan. And so I just was like, Yeah, like this is my team, you know, and um uh you know, it was exciting. It was like building a really good sort of like young team. Um, you know, mix of like a lot of overseas players and the young sort of English talent as well. And um, yeah, so it was like from that moment on, really, it was like, I guess from 2001, but I, you know, it was when I sort of came back to living to Cambridge when, you know, they were the team that I sort of like went with. And, you know, of course, everyone barred me from supporting United or Arsenal because I would be jumping on the bandwagon, you know. So it was only a few years after Chelsea started doing really well that people were like, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> I was yeah exactly it was at that excuse me it was at that stage when Roman took over the club and there was a lot of big spending where have we heard that before in terms of you know bringing in top players and then Chelsea started mm. to compete with the likes of Arsenal and Manchester United did you get a chance to go to Stamford Bridge in your sort of time when you were sort of going to and from here to Australia and what sort of stories have you got of you know following Chelsea at that at that stage um, I think 
never really had the opportunity to go until I think the first the first match I actually watched ever was um, a friend of mine on tour, Matthew Sell. He um, he was friends with someone who used to play for um, West Ham, and so he asked me to come to watch a match. And it was uh, West Ham were at home to Aston Villa, and West Ham had just signed uh, Tevez and Mascarano. And the the Villa fans, they were all chanting Tevez to Chelsea to wind up like the West Ham fans. And so that was just like quite a funny kind of period where, you know, a bit of like wind up there. But that was my first experience of actually watching like live uh, live football. And um, so I like I really enjoyed it. It was like amazing. You know, you're watching it on TV and then you're watching it in real life and the trajectory of the ball, the speed of the ball in real life is a lot different to TV. Um, and yeah, I loved it. You know, the atmosphere of the crowd was amazing and all the cheering and like the songs and stuff. And um, one of the big differences in Australian sports, we don't really have that kind of like the, all the songs about the cl- the, the club and um, about the players and things. You know, I think it's so creative and it creates like an unbelievable atmosphere because I guess with football, there's not always like goal scored and frequent intervals you know every few minutes or something sometimes it's like that you can have a, a, a crazy sort of like 20 30 minutes but you know sometimes there can be like quite long periods without sort of goals and so to help with that atmosphere i guess that the fans have created like these songs and things to kind of keep that going for like the 90 minutes and um so that's my first experience watching and then and then we watched um then we went to the two of us we went to stanford bridge to watch um uh, Chelsea play uh, Aston Villa, I think. That would have been around 2007 or something like that, 2007, 2008. Um, and then I, then I tried to go sort of like whenever it was possible, really. Um, I had started to do really well in the snooker circuit and Chelsea knew that, that I was like a fan of the club. Um, so I came to watch as a, the first time as like a guest, I guess you could call it, was the first – it was um, – I think we played Spartak Moscow in the maybe the group stage of the Champions League. I think it may right. have been. Yeah. Um, yeah. I came and, and watched that at Stanford Bridge. That was an unbelievable atmosphere because I was quite close to the, um, the, the, the away support and they were so loud. It was incredible. It was really intimidating. And, um, and then, uh, then, yeah, I can't remember the next time I would have gone after that. It would have been – actually, yeah, I'm pretty sure the next game was the first leg of the Champions League against uh, Juventus. Um, nice. where Drogba scored the goal to go 1-0 up. And the Juventus away fans, I've never seen anything like it. I thought the Spartak Moscow ones were really hardcore, but the, 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 the Juventus away fans were unbelievable. It was scary, <laughs> you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, but it was an amazing atmosphere. And, and it was brilliant seeing those kinds of players, right? I was, you know, the Juventus side had, like, you know, Buffon and uh, yeah, you right. know, Nesta playing. Uh, not Nesta, sorry, uh, Nedviad. Mm. Um, you know, I think uh, Del Piero and Trezeguet and, you know, it was like an awesome team. And, you know, obviously we were at like full strength then as well, right? You know, with like, you know, Drogba, JT and, you know, Czech Lamps and, you know, the, the rest of the team. So, yeah, it was like I'd always try and sort of, um, you know, get to games whenever it would be possible. And, um, yeah, so I went to the... I went to the first leg of the Champions League semi-final with Barcelona. You know the one where we held on to win one nil. Um, yeah, twenty twelve. Yeah, great. Yeah, the great side. The the that that. I mean, it was just like 
it was crazy the football that they played. You know, we had no choice but to sit deep in that and just to try and kind of get get a goal on the break or something. And it was mesmerizing to watch, but you know, to see you know Terry and um, you know Gary Cahill's like the whole team defensively, like the leadership mm. to just keep it all together. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, to somehow hold on and win one nil. That was uh, that was absolutely crazy. Yeah. Where was you? When it came to the Champions League final, where did you watch it? Well, yeah, so when we won the second leg, um, obviously I wanted to get to the final because like it was uh, the World Championships had finished. And um, so I, I, I got onto the phone to a few people I knew sort of like within Chelsea and that. Like I, I hadn't sort of got to know any of the players by that stage, but... And I was trying to find out, trying to trying to get tickets, and it was just like it seemed like it was absolutely impossible. Like um, the friend who gave me um, he, him and his dad were they had season tickets to Chelsea, and they actually gave myself and Matt the two tickets to watch the first leg of the semi final, and they went to one of the Chelsea pubs around around the corner from Stamford Bridge. Mm. So it was really nice of them. Um, and he told me that when he picked up the um, the tickets for the final. Um, so it was him, his wife and, and his dad. Um, somebody offered him something like 10 grand for the three tickets when he, when he like sort of picked them up mm, and mm. he, and he knocked it back, <laughs> he knocked it back to go and watch the final. <laughs> so, um, yeah, crazy, but I, I couldn't get a ticket. So I had to watch it at home and yeah, it was just, uh, it was a really sort of nerve wracking experience because, you know, we had like a lot of, inj- we had a few players injured, you know, Louise mm. and Cahill basically playing with one leg. Um, you know, John Terry was was sadly suspended, and you know a few of the other players as well, Ivanovic and you know yeah. Bayern Munich also had a couple of players suspended. And I remember both clubs putting in kind of like some sort of appeal to UEFA saying that they, if they could, because I think both teams had something like two or three players suspended. That's right, through yeah. yellow cards or whatever. Yeah, and they try to sort of appeal, and if they could allow both teams to field their full strength team, um, and UEFA knocked it back. Um, and yeah, so watching the final and again, sort of pretty similar to, uh, against Barcelona where we had to sort of defend and hang on. It was a bit of a makeshift sort of four, four, two kind of formation, you know, where, um, he doubled up on Robin with Ashley Cole and, um, Ryan Bertrand on the left. That's right. Yeah. And, um, to nullify, uh, Robin and, you know, I remember Basunga playing a great game against Ribery as well. Um, and, you know, Mikel was just putting out fires everywhere. Frank was just trying to run around and, you know, try and create something out of nothing. And, you know, yeah, Kalu, uh, Drogba and Matt are trying to get something happening as well. It was just so hard. They just kept winning the ball back all the time. And it was just, a, it seemed like attack after attack. And I remember they missed quite a few good chances early on. You know, Gomez, mm. I think he tried like a Cruyff turn in the box and he, he had all the goal to shoot at and he blazed it over. And, um you know, and then, uh, I don't know, it just looked like we were kind of never be able to kind of win the game normally by scoring a goal. You know, it looked like we were just going to try and somehow maybe nick it from a set piece or maybe on penalties. And, you know, when Muller got that goal at the end, it was, oh, no, here we go again. Because obviously, you know, going through the pain of um, 2000 and, you know, it was, what was it, four, five semifinals or something in the, in the final in, in Moscow as well, yeah. which was, you know, we kept losing and... um. You know, it's like, oh, here we are again, you know, and it was obviously like the last chance for that team to kind of win the Champions League before things were going to start to break up a bit, certain players go retire or to break off and go with other clubs. And then, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, um, 
sort of Torres, he, he won the corner, didn't he? He came on and he, he won the corner and then Mata whipped the ball and that header from Drogba was just, you know, just unbelievable. I remember jumping up in my lounge room, sort of, you know, now here we are going extra time. And But then it was like started the process all over again of trying to hang on for 30 minutes, you know, and yeah. get to pens because, it, it, you know, it, we're just never going to be able to kind of win it in open play. And then you know, Drogba gave away the pen and then Robin <laughs> sort of... Robin in the interview in, in the interview afterwards talking about his penalty, he said he tried to shoot it high and into the corner and he mishit it and just hit it flat and low, didn't he? That's and then right, checked yeah. in, in checks midriff and, and he sort of grabbed hold of the ball. Yeah, and then we yeah, then we then we hung on and then then the pens, yeah, and then oh, the penalties I couldn't watch. I saw Matter miss his first one. And um and I actually left the lounge room and like a few of my friends were still in there. And I just like, I walked to the kitchen. I was just like, oh my God. And then I heard one of my friends scream, oh, what a pen. And so then I ran up and I think it was um, Louise's pen. You know, mm. when he did that huge run up and huge he just run like, up. smashed yeah. it right into the like the top corner. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I watched the remainder of, of the penalties after that. And, you know, Czech was amazing, wasn't he? You know, the save of... Um, Oh, the Polish striker. Can't remember his name. Olic. Uh, Olic and oh, he saved. He saved Olic. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he saved his pen, and then he and not many people sort of knew it at the time, but he actually got fingertips to Schweinsteiger's um, pen as well. You know, he tried to sort of like do the slow run up and wait for Czech to move, but he wouldn't move, and then and then yeah, you know, and then um, Didier put it away. But what made me really nervous about Drogba's penalty was the um, the run up. It was only off two steps, wasn't it? So. Yeah, but to see it go in and then, yeah, oh, it's just amazing. And when you look at, obviously, could you fast forward the amount of, say, trophies that Chelsea have won, the likes of the Premier League under Ancelotti and uh, under Conte, under a certain Jose Mourinho, who would you say was your favourite coach? Um. Well, I really enjoyed um, like Mourinho when he came in because all of a sudden it was like, you know, it was like someone who just completely shook the Premier League, like who just shook everything up and, you know, um, instilled a winning mentality into the young side straight away. And, you know, not many people realise, I think at the time, you know, we were a really young side that won that first Premier League trophy, you know, like... Terry and Lampard, they're only kind of like 23, 24 and, you know, Czech and, you know, all these guys like that. It was a young side, um, you know, Robin and Joe Cole and, you know, uh, and so obviously Jose was like, he was awesome. You know, it was fantastic, that siege mentality. And, you know, there's that clip that's going around recently on X with him. Um, uh, John, I think, retweeted it or shared it on Instagram as well, the one where after we won the League Cup and, Jeff Shreves was saying, oh, do you think you've got a point to prove? And, you know, the way Mourinho goes, like, he just pauses and just like, you know, um, Sir Alex, the only person in this country who has won the, the European Cup. And then he just stops for five seconds ago. So, you know, so what? I have to prove to who? <laughs> and Jeff Shreves was just completely stung, just like no answer. And so when we sacked him, it was just kind of really sad. I just, you know, it was just so ruthless, wasn't it? And then, um, uh, Ancelotti, I think everyone loved. The fans really loved. The football was really good. It was like we were such a big, strong, physical team. And, um, you know, we scored that, you know, 
we scored what, 100 and, 106 league goals or something. What did we score that year? That season, like, 09-10, wasn't it? Yeah, we were just yeah. slaughtering teams. You know, it was like sort of five, six, seven. You know, it was it was awesome and uh, such a powerful team. And then, you know, he got sacked because, you know, finished second to United. And, you know, I mean, it was kind of Roman's fault in a way because he signed Torres, which really upset the whole sort of side because Ancelotti didn't know what to do with Torres and Drogba in the teams. It's all of a sudden, oh, well, now we've got to play two up top. Like the team's not built for that. Like, you know, um, and, and, and probably led to Mourinho sacking a few years early when he signed Shevchenko. Again, you can't just stick Shevchenko on the wing. You've got to play two up top. They try to play with a diamond and, you know, it just was just, it upset the whole sort of fluidity of the team. And, you know, so I felt for Ancelotti in, in that regard. And then, so I loved like, you know, Mourinho, Ancelotti. Um, then, yeah, then we went down a different route, I suppose, with like trying Villas-Boas and that, that never worked out. And I think, uh, who did we go with? I think, uh, well, we went with Mourinho again, didn't we? Um, and then That's Conte. Right. Conte was amazing. I, I remember I was going to games like on a very regular basis and got to meet, meet you know, Joe Terry and John Terry and got to know him well and it could hit him up for tickets anytime I wanted and it always give me his like his family tickets and that so it was just like it was awesome um yeah I remember it would be like a few days before like Liverpool game at home and I'd be like uh hey man I know it's no uh late notice but um would you better sort me out some tickets he's like yeah mate no worries I'm like oh yes let's go <laughs> um and uh so but I remember watching the the football under Conte in that first season you know when we really started to get going um, yes. because he, yeah. he, he, he stuck with the back four, didn't he, to begin with? Mm. And then when it was all going wrong at Arsenal, he had enough, didn't he? And he, he reverted to the back five sort of That's right, yeah. Um, after half time in that game. And then we went on to lose 3 0, but I think we may have been 3 0 down at the time. But all of a sudden, instantly, we looked like a completely different side. And then he, he kept that through. And then, you know, we won so many games in a row. And um, we were playing at home to Leicester. And uh, I think we I think we won the match three 0 but it was just c- complete pure control. The football was absolutely amazing, um, and yeah, I was just like one touch passing, moving, and it was just this this perfectly oiled machine working together as one. Everyone was positionally perfect, and I remember Hazard talking recently on the Ob One podcast that um he hated the all the tactical instructions from Conte, but he felt as though he played his best level under Conte. Hmm. Um, and I remember, like, one of the things from that game, which was, was unbelievable, was um, somebody, I think, cleared the ball out. It was like, and the ball, it seemed like it was in the air for an eternity. And um, I was right behind, kind of like the dugout, and Conte's just looking up at the ball, and he's just, like, controlled it perfectly with his, like, you know, Italian leather shoes, just, like, as if he had boots on. It was just, and the whole crowd just oh, went absolutely crazy, you know. And then the song, right, you know, the Antonio... You know, that, that, that song was awesome. And, yeah, I don't know. So I, I thought, here we are. We've got our manager now. You know, we've got the guy who's going to be here for a long time. And, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he won the league with that team, which, you know, on paper, not many people thought we could win with. And then, you know, he wanted some sort of pretty big players that he thought he could get. And, mm. you know, instead we signed, you know, Danny Drinkwater and Zappa Costa. <laughs> that was his reward, you know. And I think, yeah, he kind of cracked it a bit, didn't he? You know, so... um yeah, so th- those three are the ones that kind of really stick out. And um, I really enjoyed the football that Sari was trying to play as well, you know, with bringing Jorginho in as the register. And yeah, you could kind of really see what he was doing. It it didn't look great a lot of the time. Sometimes with the, the, the side with passing and the fans were getting impatient, but you could kind of see what he was trying to kind of build. Um, 
it was just a shame that uh, that he left because you know we were playing really good football sort of like towards the end where you know the Europa League final was awesome. Yeah, it was a brilliant performance from Hazard, his last for the team, and yeah. But um, yeah, those three, um, those three managers for sure. And uh, yeah, with Frank was probably the one that I think all Chelsea fans really wanted it to work out the best for, you know. But unfortunately, didn't quite sort of work out. And um, yeah, and then here we are. We're kind of well, actually, no, Tuchel, of course. So. Tuchel again, like we 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 kind of we keep getting sort of like we keep getting like baited by this, don't we? These managers we fall in love with with this in such short time, and then they're gone. Like Tuchel again, you know, he galvanized the team, and you know somehow like sort of you know getting through all the all the Coburn young players, and um, you know winning the the final against City, and um and even when we're going through the sanctions you know when he says that if we don't have a plane we'll go by bus if we don't have a bus i'll drive that you know it's just something that really connected with the fans at that time you know and then um you know the new owners come in and obviously sort of uh you know their 100 day evaluation who knows what the actual real reason was why he got sacked um but yeah that yeah so here we are you know we're going through this manager roller coaster at the minute and there aren't too many highs with the uh, the constant downs that are that are going on. No, not for the last couple of years, certainly not. And um, we've discussed the managers. Who would you say was your favourite player for Chelsea? Who's who's your all time favourite? Ah, uh, Hazard, ha- Hazard for sure. Yeah, Hazard. I loved like you know the inspiration from you know like JT and Lamps and Drogba and you know check saves over the years, obviously. And you know SEM was a player I loved as well. It's just sad that his career got really cut short through you know like the knee injuries that he got when he was on international duty with Ghana. I think he would have been just an absolute all-time great in the Premier League. Um, really like Balak as well. I, I loved him when he was at like Leverkusen and stuff. And, um, but yeah, it, it has to be Hazard. Just his individual. He, he was the only player that kind of like I felt that we had that had that real individual um, ability to win a match on his own. Like we right. had great players over the years who could come up with individual moments. But I felt like if even if we were playing bad, as long as we were in the game, we had a chance with Hazard. Sure, good choice. To be honest, very, very, very good choice. Um, just out of curiosity, obviously, with your illustrious career as a snooker player, was there any particular game that you wanted to go to, that you wanted to get tickets for, but you couldn't because, obviously, you was tied in for a, with a snooker tournament or you had to practice? Was there any particular games that you missed out on because of, um, sort of say, snooker getting in the way? Yeah, I mean, it would probably have to be the Champions League final, right, in 2012, I think. Right. Um yeah, it would have to. I would have loved to have gone to. Uh, was it in Portugal the final when we won when we beat City? Yes, it was, was in it? Porto. In Portugal. Yeah. yeah, I would. would yeah, I would have loved to have sort of gone there. Different time of year though, right? With the um, with the restrictions and stuff, right? So mm. it was you know just not possible. But I think you know um, if we sort of get there again, I don't think I could let like the third time slip. So um, yeah, sort of fingers crossed. Be on the phone to JT. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, anything. Yeah, um, of all the guests that we've had on the show as well, we've we have discussed a particular concept that has crept into football over the last number of years, and a lot of people can't stand it. A lot of people do want it gone, and that's VAR. It's something that a lot of people, okay, yep. yeah, it's a, it, it's, it's a lot of people that a lot of things that people are not happy with, and it was sort of 
apparent when we played in the cup final um, the other day mm. against them. Lot it went both north. ways, didn't it? It certainly did. What's your view on VAR? Well, I think that VAR worked brilliantly well in the World Cup um, for the most part. I think it, the the, the um, their technology, how they used the offsides, um, not doing those ridiculous like, you know, it's, it's not like we have those straight angles, is it? You know, it's like yeah. we get these angles. You know, we can't see. And then and then we're infuriated when they draw these lines from, what was it, the player's arms at the shoulder, you know, like the Jackson one on the weekend. It's like, I actually said to a friend, I said, there's no way he'll be offside with his feet here. They're going to draw it from the arm somewhere, like the Lukaku one, right, a couple of years ago, which was, again, ridiculous. I mean, a, a, fr- a friend of mine who was at the game who um, is in the media said that the the camera angle that they actually had when they've seen it past the event, he did look offside, which is fine. Like, you know, I didn't think there was anything untoward going on. But as a fan watching at home, you're infuriated because you can't see yourself. You know, you don't know what's going on. Um, the, like the Van Dyke header that was a goal, like, I, I guess I understand that from a technical point of view. You do see some decisions like that when, um, in, in the NFL in America where a yellow flag goes down and there's like a video review. Mm. So you do see that. That is fine. Um, like, so in, in Australia, in um, Australian in, in like Aussie rules, we have like the four posts, right? We've got the two smaller ones and we have the two taller ones. If the ball goes um, between the two taller ones, it's like considered a goal. Sometimes a defender can get on the line and get their fingertips to it or something like that, right? So if that is the case, the umpire then refers it to the video assistant straight away. Everyone in the crowd can see the replay of this happening. And when it's happening, the video assistant then says on the speakers to the crowd in the stadium, says, you can clearly see the ball doesn't touch the defender's fingers. It's goal. We there's no there's no transparency like that at all with VAR. Absolutely none. We get um Michael Owen and uh and and Webb on the you know the the the, the Monday um, yeah, sports got show the in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like well, I mean that, that you know that's no good to anyone who's in the stadium or, or, or at home watching the game at the time. Um, but then. You know, hearing how chaotic it is in there, and then you know, it's a bunch of guys who have just got no calmness about them whatsoever. I'm not too sure that's a good idea to be, you know, broadcasting that in the stadium. It's just absolute chaos. I can't believe how unprofessional and how amateurish it actually comes across in there. Do you know what I mean? It sounds like a, like a, little, a mini circus going on in, in inside a van. Um, so there needs to be a lot of improvement done to it. Like you know, I think for offsides, I think it's a you know, it's a good idea. Um, but I think that, that sometimes it's like when a goal gets scored, I've almost stopped celebrating myself now because like, well, how far are they going to go back? You know, is it going to be like back from the goal kick up the other end when maybe someone yeah. got half bumped over or something that had nothing to do with the play? Like, you know, it's just, it's just this, you know, so they, they need to kind of refine it and, you know, get it right. And, you know, I, I think it's a good thing if it can be done really well, because I've seen it successful in other sports where it's where it's done very well and it's quick the decision making is quick but the decision making so far is not quick in it and so they've got a lot of work to do i think what could really help is the um is bringing in the uh 
the, the the same kind of um offsides that they do in like the Champions League and what, what they used in the World Cup. You know how it's yeah. got like the um oh, I don't I'm not too sure what it's called. It's like the virtual reality kind of yeah, thing. You know, the, I, yeah. the actual I, I know what you computer mean. Yeah. sort of you know, um it doesn't have somebody manually drawing lines or asking for different views. It's just automated and it's just fact. Makes it more clearer and it's a lot quicker as well. Yes, yes. Mm. Just a few more questions, Neil, before we do let you go um, for today. We've discussed about the, some of the great Chelsea sides that have won trophies, and then you've got the Chelsea side of 2024. What's your view mm. on sort of this version of, of Chelsea? Because it's certainly not the same as what, obviously, you've seen over the last 20 years. No. Not, certainly not the same as what other fans have, have, have seen um over the years, obviously, it's a new team, new players. But what's your overall thoughts on what's going on at Chelsea Football Club today? My overall thoughts is is that when when we had to sell the club, and then you know you look at Todd Bowley's success with like the LA Dodgers and things and, and stuff like that, you can see you can get quite excited about it because they invested a lot into their LA Dodgers on young talent and the best talent. So I thought it was going to be a mix of signing maybe, you know, two or three kind of like marquee signings and then develop the youth as well, which you kind of think that's how he tried to do it in that first summer. But the the, the experienced signings and the very expensive signings on huge wages were just an absolute disaster. And then in the January, we obviously recruited an awful lot of young talent as well, which was, you know, which was very exciting. The, the results were an absolute disaster, obviously. And sacked Tuchel for, again, I'm not too sure if it's non-footballing reasons or what. Um, I think Simon Jordan on Talk Sports said that if he was the owner of Chelsea and knew what Tuchel was doing, he would have sacked him as well. But mm-hmm. again, didn't elaborate on what the actual reasons were. So I'm, I'm not too sure. And I can't really, I don't really want to guess. Um yeah. Okay, fair enough. We have a new manager. It's Potter. Um, when we signed Potter, it's like, okay, well, you know, we've got a young team, fair enough. Yeah, but like when things start to go wrong, and they always will with a young team, they're going to look at him and think, well, how can we trust anything you're saying when you haven't been there and done that yourself? You know, he can't say, don't worry, guys, we'll turn this around. We will get top four. We will compete for a cup. It's like all the players will be like, well, yeah, but how do you know? You've, you've never done that before yourself. So straight away, there's going to be a bit of pushback from the players, and that's what obviously happened. Um, and that's kind of just continued, right? You know, if, um, Frank took over, and he and he said how hard that was, you know, managing players who half of them were going to leave training session, thirty odd players. Yeah. Um, they've what they've done is it's like almost like in a in American sports where you know when you finish the bottom, you get the highest draft picks. It's like they've gone out and bought the top thirty draft picks. And they're all throwing them in together, and I think that the one player, one player, I feel really sorry for is Mudrick because Arsenal were after him. I know this for a fact. Arsenal had done a lot of work on him. You know, the deal was set up. It, took, it was you know two or three months of work. The deal set up. He knew he was going to Arsenal for a few months. He was so excited to play with Zinchenko even playing on the side, same side of the pitch, friend of his from his country, all, all sorts going on in, in their country, as you know, as we know. He was really excited for that. And then for some reason, the, 
we, we just sort of completely hijacked that deal without any thought of how we're actually going to develop him as a player. We just wanted him because Arsenal wanted him. Yeah. And we started just going after players because other clubs wanted him and um, one of those players. And so Pochettino is like sold on this project. But Pochettino can't develop two or three players and then the rest of the squad being experienced can then teach them the ways, you know, carry them through a season. Pochettino is having to develop 15, 16 players. And there's just no time you can possibly do that. You can't develop that amount of players, you know, that amount of time. And so with Mudrik and a lot of the other players, their performances and their confidence is getting lower and lower and lower because they're just not able to be integrated into the side. And um, I think that, um, you know, we, we saw Mudrik's, um, his debut performance against Liverpool. Do you, I don't know if you remember that, but it was I just do, exciting yeah. because yeah. he he came on and he it was like he got no tactical instructions whatsoever. He just got told to play. Yeah. You know, he, <laughs> he, he went through them. Yeah. You know, he was passing well. He was, you know, doing a few little tricks. He wasn't afraid of losing the ball. You know, he, he almost scored a goal. Sent he put um, uh, Carney in a couple of times. He should, he should have scored twice. But then slowly, that confidence and that belief has been fading, and that's been sort of it's spread throughout the whole squad. You know, nobody's kind of really gelling together. And there's a lot of arguments on the pitch as well. You know, you see it the players a lot of arguing. There's no kind of leadership. I think that Pochettino selecting James and Chilwell as the captains made no sense to me whatsoever. Like if James has been someone who's played every game for the last three or four years, fair enough. But he's been injured so long. Like, yeah. and, and I remember, um, you know. Uh, uh, John saying on, on 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 X saying that you know the captain has to be someone who plays every minute of every game, you know not someone who you know is injury prone. It wasn't a dig at Reese, but it's like the captain has to play all the time. Um, and so I'm just not getting the same kind of vibe uh, with the leadership. It just it seems like Chilwell's the captain because there's no one else that Potter can choose. You know it doesn't look like there's many leaders in the team. So it's a very young side that. It's just going to have to take time because you can't just, you know, the only one who's won something is probably Enzo Fernandez, I guess. You know, I don't know a few of the younger Chelsea players are left from winning the Champions League, but, you know, that's not quite the same as people who have been there and done it for like five or six years. So there's a lot of a lot of work to do in the team. Um, Pochettino was like, I mean, his performance in the final, I, I was judging him. So my harsh criticism for Pochettino didn't come from uh, the 90 minutes. It was the extra time. Yeah. Because yeah. the first 90 minutes, you know, both teams had big chances. We dominated really the last 20 minutes, especially when Liverpool had to bring on, like, you know, their, uh, their graduate kind their of players, kids. really. Yeah, their academy yeah. players. Um, and, yeah, and, you know, I know that we have a young side, but our young side is far more was far more experienced than their young players. And... You know, could have won it an extra time. Um, could have won it at the end there. You know, I think Gallagher's just a bit unlucky. Obviously, hit the post, and you know, I think you've got to credit Kelleher for the save, not so much that Gallagher missed because it's not as if he missed the target. The shot was on target. It was just Kelleher was on him in a flash. It was a brilliant mm. piece of goalkeeping. Yes, and of all the and of all the players that you just really wanted to have to score the win or something was Connor because he's the only player who's kind of really bust an absolute gut for the team all year. You know, he's playing different positions. He's playing a pivot, which he doesn't like, but he's done it anyway. Yeah. You know, he's been the yeah. real heartbeat of the team. And, you know, he pulled us out of the he pulled us out of the mud really against Palace with those two goals. He started it with Aston Villa, you know, with that brilliant first goal. Yeah. So it's yeah. not as if he's been missing everything. He's he's been an integral part of the team the last month or so. Um but when we got to extra time, 
you know, I said, right, okay, now I'm judging Pochettino. Is he going to be the guy to take us forward? Because the manager to take us forward has to be someone who knows how to win, who knows how to get the job done in these kind of circumstances, you know. Uh, and the fact that I know that he tried to defend himself, I don't believe him. He tried to defend himself by saying that he didn't, he didn't instruct the players to play for penalties. But, you know, you don't have a whole team just sit back like that if, unless they're actually told to. You know, if, if Pochettino is actually screaming at him to get up the pitch, then they're going to do it. Um, the fact that we sat back and we let those Liverpool sort of like teenagers and 20-year-olds have four or five touches on the ball before we applied any kind of pressure drove me absolutely nuts. I was, I was furious. And Gary Neville came out with a lot of criticism with what he said about the, you know, the Klopp's kids beats the billionaire bottle jobs. Neville wanted Liverpool to lose that game. He was furious with Chelsea because we didn't have a go in extra time. And you could see him, you know, he was like a, like a kettle, you know, waiting for the top to pop off because we sat back. We just allowed him to get into it. We allowed him to grow yeah. in confidence. So for me, that was a massive audition for Poch and, and, he, and he came up well, well short. And so moving forward, I, I don't know, you know, we'll see how the FA Cup goes. Tonight will be... Um, the, the match against Leeds will be an interesting atmosphere. If we go down early in that one, that is going to be n- not mm. a very enjoyable experience for the team and for him. So, yeah, I hope we get a result. I like Poch. I, I think he speaks well. You know, he, you know, he's in for this, you know, for the long haul and he's trying to develop players and that. But at the end of the day, he's never won anything of any significance. And so the longer that goes, the harder it is for players to buy into things that he's saying. Um so for me, like the, the the League Cup final was was a massive disappointment, um, and so who knows where we go from here? We we certainly can't sack him, no matter how bad things get. I think this season, we're not. I don't think we're going to do what we did, and you know, try and bring Lampard in for the for the for the good vibes. I think we'll stick for, with him for the end of the season and sort of see what happens. I think that um, uh, I think the two uh, is it Win Stanley and that that they were um, Stuart and Win Stanley, yeah. Yeah, Stuart and Win Stanley, they were responsible for bringing him in and for bringing like Potter in, right, or something. So, um, you know, that's not really worked so far, has it? You know, their management recruitment. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens because, you know, as much as maybe we're unsure what the owner's intentions are, you know, with success sort of financially and success on the pitch, how much they're willing to kind of really try and, you know, make that happen. Um they're probably not going to sort of like stand for people making these kind of decisions and, and getting them wrong from a management point of view. Because you look at Ratcliffe, he was really in for Chelsea. He came in quite late, didn't he, into the mm-hmm. into the bid to buy Chelsea. And he was a Chelsea season ticket holder. Um, and you hear the way he's talking about United and it's like, I've it almost feels as though we've really missed out there because he's, you know, he, he got Man City's, you know, best man, you know, he's um, and he, he's trying to get the best. You know, he's not he's not trying to develop people into being good sporting directors, like what you know, Bali and Bali said. We can we think these guys can be great sporting directors. You know, Ratcliffe's just getting the best, yeah. um, and he will yeah. get the best manager available. Um, so it will be interesting to see how those two things happen because when we won the Champions League, it's like United were about five years behind us. Yeah, and now You're all right. of a sudden, you know, now all of a sudden things have seems like they're really like spinning to the other way around. You know, United aren't playing great this year. We know that, but Ratcliffe is putting things in place for them to become great. And off uh, the pitch, they're, yeah. they're doing some work. Yeah. 
Final question from from me, Neil, for for today. You 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 touched on Poch, and yeah, I can't personally see him getting a sack between now and the end of the season. Obviously, depending what depending where we finish, might be a different story for him. But again, as you say, the, the higher and firing of managers, there has to come a there has to come a point where you know you need to stick with somebody mm. that is going to, as you say, develop players. But the problem is, how many players can you develop in space of a season? It is difficult. Yeah. But final question from me, Neil. What, what's, what's your predictions for, for, for Chelsea? You know, where do you see Chelsea in the next 12 months? Do you see them as it is now? Or do you feel that there's something there that can be built on? I mean, I think I, I want us to just go one way or the other. So basically sort of either, like really stick with Poch and say, look, we're going to trust you to really build this team. We're going we're gonna to trust you and... So either stick with that or bring in someone who has that winning experience, you know. Um, so I think for now until the end of the season, certainly it would be great to, I think with FFP, I'm not too, even too sure if we can compete in the conference league, but at least finish in the position where we could, right? If we're not in it, we're not in it because of financial fair play or some penalties, fine. But if at least if we can kind of finish the season and, and get into some, you know, those places maybe, um, and you know, have a good run in the FA Cup. And for me, like, it's it's not really about all about winning or losing. It's about like the style of football. And if you're seeing like true progress in the side, and it looks like we can actually build into something, like Klopp's first few years, like he didn't win anything, he lost a couple of finals, but you could see him building something. And it was exciting football, and then it was something that the the fans could really um, grow into and 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 develop with him. That's what I want to see with us is is for us to develop with these coaches, with these young players, and then be on that ride together, and then hopefully win something big. Because you know Klopp's leaving, which is you know who knows what Liverpool will be next season. They could be great if they maybe get Alonso or something or a Nagelsmann. Who knows? Um, they certainly won't be as good, I don't think. Hmm. So there are opportunities there to, you know, to to to, to move up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is as well. We we do need two sort of marquee signings. Like we we need a striker. That's just so obvious. Um, without a striker, we've got no chance of finishing anywhere sort of close to the top four. We just won't. So if we can if we can get sort of like two two good signings in in the summer and develop the young players like we do have a great young squad, um, then yeah I think next season a realistic target you'd have to say top five is absolutely a realistic target and it has to be and it, it has to be the minimum requirement really you know if we give Poch this season to develop to learn to see the players he wants the ones he doesn't and then he has next season and if he doesn't finish top five then you'd have to say he's probably not the person but I certainly see us. Definitely competing for for top five without a doubt, and and hopefully win a cup. You know, hopefully win like a league cup or a FA Cup or something. While Pep's at City, you're not going to win the league. It's just in, like, you know, like you look at what Klopp's done. You know, what ninety seven, ninety five points or something, and for still finishing yeah. second. Like, he's it's it's too, it's too good. Very high standards, but we we was there once. Hopefully, we will be we there were. again. We were. We was there yeah. once. But Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It really has. And thank you so much for obviously your insight into your world of snooker and obviously in the world of football as well. And obviously good luck with the championships coming up 
this year and hopefully we'll sort of get to see you back at the bridge someday quite soon as well all right cheers yeah thank you very much guys thank you